0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt
1: Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we show you exactly how to build the habits and routines you need to succeed. We break down what makes powerful habits and share how to stay motivated and productive no matter what happens with our guest, James Clear. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along the with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting, and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word Smarter. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 4. 222. In our previous episode, we told the truth about self-awareness. 95% of people think they're self-aware, but only 10 to 15% actually are. Where do you think you stand and what can you do to improve what our previous guest called the superpower of the 21st century? All that and more with our previous guest, Dr. Tasha Urich. Now for our interview with James. James Clear is an American author, entrepreneur, and photographer. His personal blog, jamesclear.com, has over 400,000 email subscribers. Since his last visit to the show, his first book, Atomic Habits, has gone on to sell over a million copies worldwide and been featured on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year straight. James's work focuses primarily on habits and human potential, looking to answer the question, how can we live better, by focusing on science-backed methods. He has been featured in the New York Times, CBS, Forbes, and many more media outlets. James, welcome back to the Science of Success.
2: Hey, good to talk to you again. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, we're super excited to have you back on the show. You know, I've been a huge fan of your blog and your work for many, many years. And so we wanted to have you back on here to really dig into many of the topics that we may have touched on in our previous conversation or even things that have changed or become more interesting or relevant for you since, uh, since we last chatted. Perfect. I'd love to start out with something. We're going to jump right into the deep end here. So one of the topics that we talk a lot about on Science of Success is decision-making and really digging into how do we make better decisions using tools like mental models and so forth. And you, in our previous conversation, actually, you said one of the most interesting things that I've ever really conceptualized around decision-making, which is how decisions and habits intersect with each other and what their relationship is. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that.
2: Well, Broadly speaking, I think there are probably, well, we could say there are three pillars that influence your outcomes in life. So you've got one is your luck, randomness, misfortune, uncertainty, just things happen. Second one are your choices and decisions. And then the third are your habits and behaviors. And only two of those three things are under your control. So broadly speaking, or generally speaking, the two big pillars, the two big levers that you have to pull on for your outcomes in life are the choices that you make. So your strategy and the habits that you build. So your behavior and your actions. And I like to think of it as if you can get those two things under control, then you actually can, the third bucket of luck and randomness, you, by definition, you don't have control over that, but you can kind of increase your exposure to good things or increase the odds that something fortunate will come your way by showing up more frequently or making more strategic decisions and so on and so those two pieces that are under your control your strategy and choices and your habits and behaviors the way that i think about them is that your your choices set your trajectory or they like um they're kind of like potential energy they create the amount of energy available to you the amount of outcomes or results that are available to you And your habits are how you capitalize on that. One example of this is like, you can imagine two entrepreneurs and one person, they start like a local shop, like a pizza shop or a candle shop or something. And you can imagine like this dotted line, this kind of trajectory extending out from that decision, that choice of what the upside is to that business. And somebody else, another person, another entrepreneur might start like a software company. And you can imagine another dotted line extending out from there. And the software entrepreneur may have the higher upside in theory. That choice, that decision may have created more potential energy that could be capitalized. But if the person who starts the local pizza shop has really killer habits and they execute really well, then they may capitalize on more of the potential energy and they may actually end up with a better outcome. Now, of course, what we really want is we want both of those, right? We want to be able to make great decisions and to have great habits. And I think if you can put those two together, then you end up with much greater odds of getting remarkable results. And so the way that I think about those is like kind of working in concert and the summary that I would have is your effort, the hard work you put in your habits, your effort sets your floor. Hard work will determine what the floor is for you. You can always work yourself to a certain level, but your strategy sets your ceiling. And if you don't make good choices, and you, you don't make wise decisions, then you kind of like cap the upside for yourself. And so ideally, you're making choices that have sort of unbounded upside or a lot of potential to them that are like, they're ripe with potential energy. And you're executing with great habits to make sure that you're making the most of those opportunities.
1: I love the example of decision making, creating the potential, or the, you know the available outcomes. In some sense, creating the ceiling, and then the habits allowing you to capture either some or all or none, depending on really the quality of the habits that you choose.
2: Right, and you sort of need both. You know, it's like if you stop working, like having great strategy is important, very important because it sets that upside, sets that ceiling. But if you stop working or you skip your habits for a month or two or whatever, then no matter how much potential energy is there, it goes to zero. So you really do kind of need both. And, you know, atomic habits hopefully is kind of like the manual or one manual or field guide one way for thinking about how to capitalize on your actions and building better habits. And then now I'm kind of exploring more of the decision making and strategy side of things
1: it's interesting because my perspective is probably the opposite in the sense that I've spent a tremendous amount of time on the decision-making side. Probably, if I really take an honest assessment, to some degree, almost to the detriment of the habit side in the sense of I focus way too much maybe time and energy on making sure the strategy is perfect, making sure there's as high a ceiling as possible. And I've almost in the last year or two really had to say, okay, I need... Actually, I would say 98% of people's problem is they have not enough sort of contemplative time, strategic thinking time, I needed to cut down and be like, I need more execution time because I'm doing too Mm. much strategizing.
2: You know, what's tough about it is that we often discuss strategy as being something that is predetermined, that's planned ahead of time. We're going to sit down, we're going to think about this for a day or week or month or whatever it is, and we're going to come up with our strategy, our plan, and then we're going to go spend the next year and execute on it. But in reality... One, the world is dynamic. It's evolving. So whatever you make a plan for now is not necessarily what things will be like in a month or a year or two years or whatever. And two, the world is uncertain, which means that it's not possible. It's physically impossible for someone to map all of the potential interactions, outcomes, et cetera, ahead of time. Nobody can think through all of the different variables before they begin. And so in a lot of ways, I think it's more useful to consider strategy as something that emerges over time, rather than something that's premeditated beforehand. Now, that doesn't mean that that premeditation or that planning ahead of time isn't necessary or isn't useful. I do think it's really good to start things with a solid plan and you can put yourself in a much better position by doing that. But it's more the idea of, yes, you want to do that, and it remains like this open set as you continue to work. And so it's going to continue to evolve and grow as you go through things. There's not like a a thinking time and a working time, and they're completely separate. And so as you start to try things, the other thing that I think is useful about looking at it this way is that because the world is uncertain and you need to be trying things, there's a certain... Wisdom that comes from experimentation, you know that like trial and error is how most humans throughout most of human history have discovered things Nobody really has the answers to start we kind of stumble into them And once you realize that you sort of realize that yes I do want to have a good plan to start but also the way to get to the best plan is to iterate a lot is to try a bunch of experiments to expose myself to some new ideas to try to execute on this plan that I've already laid out, and then get some feedback to see if that's effective or not. And it's really all of those inputs, that additional information that you get from trying things, from executing on things, that allows the ideal strategy to emerge over time. And so once you start to look at it that way, you start to realize, oh, actually, you know, I need to think through this and be thoughtful about it, but one of the first things I need to do is get started so that I can start getting some feedback and iterate. So in that way, I I kind of see habits and decisions or action and strategy as being mutually reinforcing. They're not totally separate phases. They One of them feeds on the other.
1: Yeah, I totally agree about them being mutually reinforcing. And in some senses, that perspective really reminds me of one of my favorite quotes about strategy, which is that strategy is not about seeing 10 moves ahead. It's about having 10 times the amount of potential tools or options or mental models to handle whatever comes next.
2: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I would say one of those tools is the I like the mental model of you can call it different things, but uh, second order thinking, you know, like most people make a choice and they think what's going to happen because of that choice. But then you want to go to the second or the third or the fourth order. What happens because of that? And then what happens because of that? It's like a chess player thinking through, you know, five or six moves. And so that is just one of those tools. It's almost like your description of strategy is not thinking ahead. It's having this toolbox. Well, thinking ahead is just one of the tools in the toolbox. And so yep. you need to do that. But then you also need to have six or eight or 10 or 12 other things that are also powerful and useful. I like mental models like inversion, thinking about the opposite or margin of safety, always making sure you have a buffer for the unknown. Like if you have a, a toolbox filled with those tools, then yeah, sometimes thinking ahead will get you what you want. But you also need other things so that when uncertainty or unexpected things happen, you can adapt.
1: So taking a small step back, just for people who may not know what mental models are, how do you think about mental models and, and the importance of integrating those into your strategy and decision making?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, our kind of like sphere of the internet or whatever has been talking about mental models for a while now, and they've sort of taken on this air as if they're like something new or different or whatever. but Honestly, the more I think about them, the more I just consider it. it's like an idea or a concept and like all of education, literally your entire life as you've been going through school or learning different things, each new idea or concept that comes to you is a mental model of some sort. It's just a way of viewing the world, a way of looking at the world. It's a way of explaining things, explaining certain phenomena. And each mental model, you know, it has limitations, like it, it only extends to a certain sphere But it also has certain applications, and so you want to, broadly speaking, you want to hold the ideas in your head that one are the closest to truth, they're closest to how the world actually works, and two that they have broad like applicability, so they can be used in a wide range of circumstances, and not very narrow. And then maybe the the third part is that they, whenever possible, are predictive and not just explanatory. There are a lot of things that are explanatory in life. People come up with rationalizations or stories or reasons, and some of them are like sort of scientifically grounded or sound really good. But when you break them down a little bit more, you realize, oh, this is actually just a way of explaining what has already happened. It doesn't really help me predict what to do next. It's not very much of like a theory for the future. And so I think the best mental models kind of fill all three of those categories. They're very close to truth. They're widely applicable, and they're predictive and not just explanatory. And if you have that, if you have those three qualities, then that idea or concept, it sort of becomes like a theory for how to approach the future. I was watching a great interview with Clayton Christensen, the HBS professor, a couple weeks ago, and he said something interesting, which is, if you have data, like if people like to make database decisions... And data is great, but it only applies to the past. It only applies to what has already been measured. That's why we have the data. So, if you want to make any decision going into the future, you can't only have data. You also need a theory to guide your actions and behavior. And this is something that all of us, we just like experience this in life because this is what it's like to live. This is what it's like to go through the world and have a life, which is that you are constantly forced to spend the next moment. Sometimes people talk about time and money and they're like, oh, you know, you can make more money, but you can't make more time. And that is true. But I think the quality about time that is most unique is that you are forced to spend it. You don't get to decide the next moment has to be lived no matter what. And so because we are constantly on this path where we're going into the future, constantly spending the next moment. It's really important to have good theories for how to spend that moment. You don't just need data. You need a good approach for how to, what to do in the next moment, even though you don't know what it's going to bring. And I think that mental models that have those kind of three qualities of truth, applicability, and predictiveness allow you to have a good theory for going through life and figuring out how to spend the next moment
1: those are great criterion for evaluating quality mental models. And and you're totally right. Your point at the very beginning of this conversation is this idea that mental models can seem kind of esoteric and confusing. And really, it's just concepts or theories or ideas that in some way try to explain reality. And even that sounds too academic, too confusing. It's not as confusing as it sounds, but it's hard to explain in a way that doesn't confuse people. And I thought you did a really good job of doing that.
2: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, you know, like literally every little fact that you know about the world, like that's in some way, it's just an explanation of it. Like you can't, there's no way to get to a fully coherent, full resolution version of reality. The only thing that is that is actual reality. Like everything has to be explained or simplified to at least some degree. When I describe a flower to you and the color of it, I'm not describing the location of every atom and the interactions between all the cells and like, you know, something is simplified. So all of these mental models are just, they're simplifications of the world. Why do plants grow? Oh, well, we have a mental model called photosynthesis and that explains why plants grow. And that's one idea that you can carry around that explains how the world works. And then why do animals look the way we do oh we have another mental model it's called evolution and you know we can explain that and that gives you another little lens to look at the world and so in a lot of ways i kind of view these concepts regardless of what discipline they come from they're like a set of glasses you know it's like a different lens and you can just okay sometimes i'm going to put on this lens and that lets me see the world through the color yellow and then this one lets me see the world through the color red and so on and by switching out the lenses or by having more sets of glasses you can sometimes see things that you would otherwise miss. And so mental models give you the more concepts, the more ideas you have that are close to truth and widely applicable, the more clearly you can see the world because you have all these different lenses that you can put on.
1: Do you have any habits around mental models, whether it's learning, organizing, applying them, et cetera, that, that you found to be really helpful?
2: So I do have a couple, but the last part of your question I think is important to get to, which is organizing and applying them. And this is again, something that I feel like the kind of the mental models area of the the internet that we hang out in talks about like, Oh, making checklists or coming up with a, a lattice work of models and so on. I'm not totally criticizing that. Like the, it can be useful, but I don't think that that's how people actually think in practice. I don't believe that's how the brain actually works. And what I mean is you're constantly making decisions throughout the day. And your brain is doing this like fluently, implicitly, automatically, just it's very rapid. You're not sitting down and thinking each time you have to make a choice. Oh, let me go through this checklist of 10 things or 20 things or whatever these concepts and mental models are. We don't actually make choices like that. You're in the middle of a meeting debating with your coworkers and then like something gets decided, but nobody paused the meeting to go through this checklist of 20 things. And so I think actually the way to really apply mental models again, it's very similar to what basic education is like addition and subtraction are mental models, but you don't sit and go through a checklist of mathematical models to determine when to apply addition and when to apply subtraction. Once you've learned the idea, you just use it automatically whenever it's relevant. And I think that is the best way to think about how to use mental models in practical fashion. What you're looking to do, is to find the best, biggest, most applicable and useful ideas that the world has to offer. And then you're looking to learn them so deeply and so clearly that you can use them automatically whenever you need, just like addition and subtraction. And so I don't think there needs to be a formal process for applying them. I think it's just literally you need to like know it front to back, learn it deeply, and then it becomes part of your worldview. And so the, the best way to apply them is to know them so well that they just influence the way that you look at the world. Now, that doesn't mean that maybe there aren't times when it would be useful to have a checklist. Like maybe you want to have a running list of the top 30 mental models that you use and when you make really big choices like maybe once a year we're thinking about buying a new business or we're thinking about you know going to a different school or moving to a new neighborhood or whatever some big life choice then sure maybe you should run through those and that would be kind of a useful thing to do but generally speaking for most of daily life i think it's just know it really deeply so that said that means the one thing that's left to do is to find and integrate really great mental models and so my main habit around it is just to read a ton and i guess i should say there are two it's inputs and it's a uh, finding and it's filtering so reading a ton exposing myself to a lot of ideas curating my twitter feed watching youtube videos or listening to podcasts just a lot of information inputs and as much as possible you try to make those high quality and then once all that information is coming in then there needs to be some kind of period of reflection and review, some period of filtering. So the summarized version might be broad funnel, tight filter. So we're trying to get exposure to a lot of ideas, and then we're trying to narrow down to the very best ones. And for me, I kind of have an additional advantage, which is my job is to write about things, and that's a great filter. You know, like I'm only going to write about a topic if I find it really interesting or really useful. And the act of taking notes on it, turning it into an article, maybe using it as a book chapter, like there's a lot of filtering going on in that process where I'm trying to get to the highest signal and the lowest amount of noise. So you could, of course, do that in a journal or, you know, whatever your own process is, even if you're not a writer or an author. But that's kind of the main thing that helps me narrow down once I have that broad funnel.
1: Yeah, I completely agree about both of those key ideas around mental models. I mean, my own experience has definitely been the more you can study and ultimately subconsciously internalize those models into essentially sort of Kahneman's system one, the more you just start to naturally apply them in the situations that they come up. And the second thing that you touched on just a second ago, this idea of reflection and review, to me, that's a key piece of if you find models that you think are really important, Reviewing them using a, whether it's a forgetting curve methodology or whatever, some kind of spaced repetition, which essentially is another mental model. As a side note, those are some really effective ways to start to almost seep those ideas into your subconscious so that you're naturally applying them and not having to go back and reference a a decision making checklist when you're in real time.
2: Right. That's a good distinction. Space repetition, writing about it, whatever it is, there needs to be some revisiting of the ideas, particularly the very best ones. Because once you've found a really great mental model, you want to be able to use it a lot. You know, like you want that idea to become part of your worldview, part of your lifestyle. And I think we need to make contact with ideas repeatedly for us to to really internalize them. And so, yeah, space repetition or writing or whatever, those are just different ways of doing that having conversations with friends, a discussion group, a book club, whatever it is that's surfacing the idea consistently, any of that will definitely help.
1: But yeah, I totally agree with the broader idea that it's really about deeply internalizing these models, whatever methodologies you use, so that they naturally become part of your subconscious decision-making and thinking process as opposed to trying to consciously apply them in any given situation. Right. So I want to change gears a little bit and come to another topic that you talk a lot about that I hear constantly from whether it's friends, podcast listeners, family members, etc. And, and this is the idea of not feeling like you're motivated, especially we're in some rather unique times these days. And, and it's easy to not have motivation to do something or to implement good habits or whatever. How do you think about the puzzle of motivation and, and why people struggle and wait around until they feel like doing something? Well, so there's a little bit of a
2: Challenge which is and anybody knows this as soon as I explain it right like motivation rises and falls So we've all had that experience. Sometimes we feel motivated. Sometimes we don't and so that what that means is motivation is a fluctuating resource But whenever we discuss habits or behaviors, we are again by definition This is obvious once you state it. We're talking about a reliable behavior something that is like fairly stable you know, you're able to do it consistently again and again Well, if you're trying to build something reliable, something stable, then you don't want it to rely on something that is fluctuating, right? Like those two things don't match up or they don't align well. So the more that your habits rely on motivation, the more that you become beholden to how you feel in any particular moment, rather than to the stability and reliability that you're hoping to build. So, for that reason, I think that it's often more effective to focus on some other aspects of habit building than motivation. I, I feel like it's better to not make that the bottleneck. So, a couple different strategies that you can use. One is what I call environment design. And I talk about this a lot in Atomic Habits this idea of like trying to optimize the environment to make the good habit the path of least resistance. So, That means like whatever the cue is or the signal is that gets your habit started, you want that to be obvious and available and visible. Whatever the action is itself, you want that to be as easy as possible, as simple as possible to do. So like as an example, I was talking on another interview about, they were asking me about how to build a reading habit. I started to look around and I realized, you know, actually, so right now next, I have like five or six books that are sitting next to me on my desk. I also have books sort of sprinkled around my home. So there's some in the living room. There's a couple by my uh, bed. And so they're, they're kind of prevalent in the physical environment. If you open up my phone, the very first app that I see is audible. And then I also have pocket on there. So uh, which allows you to like save articles and read them for later. So now in the digital environment, reading is pretty obvious. And then finally, I spend most of my time when I'm on the computer in the web browser. And usually I have anywhere between 10 and 20 tabs that are open at any given time. And about three or four of those are related to business, you know, Gmail, Asana, whatever, other other stuff like that. But the majority of them, like 10 or so, are usually articles that I either am in the middle of reading or I want to get to read soon. And so what I started to realize is if you look at that, my digital environment, my phone, my desktop, and my physical environment, my desk, my bed next to my bed and living room, etc., Books are very prevalent in all of those spaces. And so it becomes very easy if I get, it's almost like I make it easy to, for lack of a better term, to procrastinate productively. You know, like if I get distracted, "Ah, I just pick this book up and read a page. Or if I don't feel like, you know, looking at this list of emails anymore, then I'll just click on a different tab and oh, that's an article that I wanna write. So you make it easy for your attention to slide into the things that you wanna do. So that's kind of the first strategy for rather than relying on motivation, shape the environment so that the good habit is the path of least resistance. Or another way that I like to phrase it is, if you want a habit to be a big part of your life, make it a big part of your environment. So, So that's kind of the first strategy. The second strategy is a lot of people feel like what they need is motivation, but what they really need is clarity. So what I mean is that we wake up and we think, oh, I, you know, I hope today will be the day I feel motivated to write or, you know, I hope I feel motivated to go to the gym today or whatever it is. But if you look at people who actually stick to habits consistently uh, or have had behaviors for quite a while, they don't wake up feeling like that. It's more like, oh, going to the gym is just what happens on Mondays at 5 p.m. Or I write every weekday at 930 a.m. in my office. It's just like what I do. So they have like extreme clarity around when and where the behavior lives in their life. And there are a variety of strategies you can use to do this. One of the ones that I discuss in Atomic Habits is what's called an implementation intention. And there are well over a hundred studies on implementation intentions, but the core idea is the same, which is you basically fill out a sentence that says, I will perform this action in this place at this time and so it's it's very specific they actually like write that sentence out there was one study again i'm pretty sure i mentioned it in the book where they were trying to get people to exercise more frequently and the one sentence that they had this group fill out was i will partake in at least 20 minutes of vigorous exercise on this day at this time in this place and they, they everybody had to fill out that sentence and anybody in the cohort that filled out that sentence about nine out of 10 of them worked out, whereas in the control group, it was like three out of 10. So you know it was like two to three X more likely that they were gonna actually follow through just by filling out that sentence. And there have been a bunch of studies that have shown that same kind of thing for your odds of going to the polls and voting, for your odds of getting a flu shot or showing up for a colonoscopy appointment, for your odds of sticking to recycling habits or even stuff like quitting smoking, like all kinds of behaviors. The more clear the plan is, the more likely you are to stick with it and not become a victim of whether you feel motivated or not that particular day. So I tend to view all of those sort of actions as like building a system. It's a system of behaviors that move you in a direction toward your desired outcome. And I talk about that a lot in the book as well, like focusing on systems rather than goals, rather than this goal of, I want to work out for 45 minutes a day and I just need to get amped up and motivated and hyped and then I'll fall through on it. You say, You know, instead of that, instead of relying on motivation, I'm going to focus on building a system that makes that habit more likely. I'm going to design an environment that is conducive to it. I'm going to come up with a clear plan for when and where I'm going to execute on that. And by doing that and a variety of other strategies that I discuss in the book, you know, you can sort of have like 10 or 15 things all sort of nudging you in the right direction. And it becomes much easier to make a good habit, likely to make a good habit something that you follow through on consistently when it is the path of least
1: resistance so
2: that's sort of how i think about that difference between motivation and habit
1: i really like the point about the mismatch between the unpredictability of motivation and relying on that is almost like building your life and your habits on quicksand if that's what you're using as the fuel for your habits
2: right, yeah b j. Fogg, who's a professor at Stanford, writes about habits as well. He's got a lot of great stuff. I think he has a talk where he talks about a concept he calls motivation waves, and his sort of thought is it's like you could think about motivation as this wave that like rises and falls throughout the day, and yeah you don't want to you don't want to rely on that. you want to design a system that serves you instead.
1: Tell me a little bit more about that idea of designing systems and focusing on systems rather than goals
2: well. The thought of it in this terminology, systems and goals, something I first read about from Scott Adams, and it kind of got me thinking and interested in this, you know, we've been talking about this, humans have been talking about this since, you know, the dawn of time, it seems like this process over outcome system over goal, like focus on showing up each day rather than waiting for the result. And there's a lot of truth to it, because particularly with habits, and to put a little finer point on what I mean, your goal is like your desired outcome. losing 30 pounds, making more money, getting a raise, reducing stress, whatever it is. But your system is the collection of daily habits that you follow. And if there is ever a gap between your system and your goal, if there's ever a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, the daily habits will always win. And in fact, you could almost say like your current habits are perfectly designed to deliver your current results. So Maybe even a little more accurate, like whatever habits you've been following for the last six months are perfectly designed to deliver your current results, right? It's like whatever system you've been running recently, where you're at right now is just a natural byproduct of that. And I think this is maybe more true than we even realize in most areas of life, you know, like in most areas... Your outcomes are a lagging measure of your habits. Like your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits or your physical fitness is a lagging measure of your eating and training habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Even something as simple as like the amount of clutter on your desk or you're in your garage or whatever is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. And so we also badly want the results to change. You know, we also badly want more money or to look sexier to have less stress or we, we want different outcomes, but the outcomes aren't usually the problem. Like if you fix the inputs, the outputs will fix themselves. And so this idea of focusing on systems rather than goals on focusing on your daily habits rather than your desired outcome is really about that. It's about putting your attention toward the trajectory that you're on, rather than on your current position. We all think a lot about current position. What is the number in the bank account? What is the number on the scale? But my argument is, and another phrase I'd like to use is try to get 1% better every day. And the idea of getting 1% better each day is all about trajectory, not position. It helps you realize that If you can build a system that has you going up and to the right, that has you moving in this positive direction, even if it's just 1% a day, then you can end up in really remarkable kind of fruitful place at the end of a year or two years or five years or whatever. And so systems over goals is much more about focusing on that trajectory rather than that position.
1: One of my favorite ideas that I've heard you talk about around this is this notion that an outcome is just a point on a spectrum of reps. To me, that was such a fascinating idea. Can you explain that a little bit more and and talk about how that ties into this whole concept?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, and this is another thing with systems of goals, that achieving a goal really only changes your life for the moment, you know? If you have a clean room, let's say you set a goal to have a clean room, you look at your bedroom, it's all cluttered up or whatever. Well, if you go in there and work for an hour or two, you might have a clean room for now. But if you don't change the sloppy messy habits that led to a dirty room in the first place, then you turn around two or three weeks later, and you've got a messy room again. And so again, it's like fix the inputs and the outputs will fix themselves change the habits and the outcomes come as a natural byproduct of that. And that's sort of what this question that you're asking this idea this concept that every outcome is just a point on a spectrum of repetitions. That's what that's getting at. If you build a habit of cleanliness, of tidying up, of organizing your room each night, then, you know, the more reps that you put in, the more that you organize your room for five minutes each night, you get five days in and 20 days in and 50 days in. And then, you know, you get to the 90th or the 100th or the 200th day or whatever. And that outcome, that point on the spectrum of a a completely pristine room, is just a natural byproduct of all those reps. The place that I first really learned this or conceptualized this was with weight training. So when I was in the gym, you know, I had all these goals that I wanted to hit for how much I squat or how much I bench press or whatever. And one day I just like twisted around a little bit and thought about, all right, what would it take to squat that amount of weight? How many reps would I have, have to have done previously in order to be able to do that now? And you could probably do that with like whoever you're looking at in the gym that's working out around you're like, Oh man, I wish it was as strong as that guy or as strong as that girl. Just think back, like how many reps do you think they've done in their personal history? You know? And so it's like, well, maybe, maybe squatting 200 pounds is something that takes a thousand reps in your personal history. And then once you get to 5,000 reps, then maybe you've got the ability to squat 300 pounds. Then maybe you get to 50,000 reps and you've got the ability to squat 500 pounds or whatever it is, right? Like there's, you're kind of moving along this spectrum of reps. And the more that you've put that work in, the more that you build up that capacity, you start like crossing these little points on the spectrum that most people refer to as goals or milestones, but you could sort of look at it as just like a natural byproduct of putting the reps in. And if you buy into that idea, if you buy into that philosophy, then the, the very next question you think, or the very next thing you get to is, well, I need to start putting my reps in as soon as possible. You know, like maybe in my case for writing, I was like, well, I'd love to have a hundred thousand email subscribers. All right. How many reps does that require? Do I have to write 50 articles? Do I have to write 200 articles? You know, like you just need to start putting your reps in. So uh, the other reason I like that is not just because it helps you be patient, but also because it gives you like a bias toward action. You know, like you're simultaneously feeling, I need to go put my work in because I got to get through these reps if I want to get to that outcome. And I need to be patient because all of those outcomes are a natural byproduct of putting in a certain amount of work.
1: Yeah. When I originally encountered that concept in your work, it really blew my mind. I thought it was such a powerful framework. And even just what you said, that notion that it simultaneously creates a bias for action, but then also almost frees you from the need to immediately hit that goal. And it's just like, hey, if I put in the work, if I put in the reps keep doing it, that goal will become a byproduct of having the right architecture and execution of habits.
2: I remember uh, there's this weightlifting coach, named name is Dan John, and he's like a strength coach and does a, a variety of different things in that sphere. And he has this one concept that stuck with me, which is you're not good enough to be disappointed. And it's kind of related to this, you know, like all these beginners, whenever we're starting out and trying something new... You do it for, you know, a week or two or whatever and you're not seeing the results you want and you get disappointed. And his point is, listen, you're not good enough to be disappointed. You don't get to be disappointed yet. You haven't put in enough reps to be disappointed with the outcome, right? Like the thing that you're upset about not having yet, that doesn't happen until you're 2 years into this. So, you don't get to be disappointed yet. And I like that idea. I like the concept that like the you know the master has failed more times than the beginner has even tried and so the more that you can see that those outcomes is that uh, point on that spectrum of repetitions the more you can kind of like check your emotion for a little while and get back to putting in the
1: reps and this comes back makes me think of something you touched on a minute ago with the idea of implementation intentions and the broader concept of actually creating space and and creating time for your goals in your calendar Right. It's easy to have these goals, these aspirations, things you want to do. But until you do the reverse engineering of mapping that into what do I want to achieve? Okay. What do the reps actually look like on a day to day basis? And you have to make sure that those end up being scheduled at some point in your day for them to actually happen.
2: Yeah. You want to have like a time and a space for your behaviors to live. You know, it's similar to what I mentioned a few moments ago this idea of, a lot of people wake up and feel like, oh, I, I hope I feel motivated to do it. Well, it's like, no, like give it a space to live, right? Give it some sacred space that belongs to that behavior and that'll help increase the odds that it happens. doesn't make it perfect, but there's no way to perfectly know if you're going to be able to stick to a habit every day or not. There are just sometimes things come up. Sometimes, you know, emergencies happen or whatever. But what you're trying to do is make as many moves as possible that put the odds in your favor, right? We're like playing with probabilities, not with certainties. Nothing is certain about the future, but we can try to design a system where good behavior is more likely. And that's sort of like one of the core messages of Atomic Habits. Is And I think I say this in the the conclusion, which is. The holy grail of behavior change is not a single one percent improvement. It's a thousand of them. You're trying to take all these little strategies, all these to borrow one of your phrases from earlier, all these tools in your toolbox, and use them to design the system, design an environment that puts the odds in your favor. So those are just a couple ways to do that.
1: Yeah. The idea of stacking all of these strategies and, and combining together is such an important understanding and comes to another concept that I thought was just a great perspective on any habit, which is the notion of never missing twice. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: So there are kind of two explanations here. So let me explain a little bit by way of a story. So one of the things that you really want, and this is in the book I refer to this is the fourth law of behavior change, this idea that you wanna make it satisfying. You want your behaviors to be rewarding, enjoyable, pleasurable. They need to have some kind of positive emotion associated with them, because that gives your brain a signal of oh hey i should do this again in the future like that felt good and one of the challenges with good habits is that they're often (laughs) all the rewards all that rewarding thing all that all that pleasure and emotion and positive emotion is all delayed a lot of the time and we all have felt this you know like you sit down and you start writing your book for uh, an hour and you've worked really hard and the manuscript is still a mess it feels like you're still light years away from having it finished or You go to the gym and you work out and you get done and your body looks exactly the same. If anything, you feel sore. The scale hasn't changed. And so it's like, was that even worth it? Like it doesn't feel like it. And so all the returns are delayed. So what you need is something in the moment to make you feel like that was worth it, to make you feel like this was a positive experience. So my parents kind of have a good example. They like to swim. And whenever they get out of the water, their body looks exactly the same as when they got in, right? Same story as what I'm just saying, like there's no evidence that that workout was worth it. But my dad has this little pocket calendar and he pulls it out and he, he puts an X on that day when they swim. And this is just, you know, like commonly called a habit tracker, this kind of form of tracking your habit in the moment. And whenever you do it, whenever you write one sentence or read one page or do one push up, you put an X on that day and it's a visual signal that you showed up and that you're making progress and so it's a small thing but doing it each time like that it helps give you a signal that you're moving forward and it adds a little bit of pleasure a little bit of enjoyment to the process and so those habit streaks you know there are a bunch of apps that help you do it you can do it with any calendar i have a journal a habit journal that i designed and created and it's got like habit tracker templates in the back so there are a bunch of ways to do it but the point is as that streak builds up it becomes motivating, it becomes enjoyable. And you're you're kind of like, you have a reason to keep showing up and going to the pool or doing whatever, even though you're waiting for those long-term rewards to show up still. And so having the process of having a streak is very motivating. And as it builds, it feels great. But at some point, every streak ends and your kids get sick or you have to travel for work or whatever it is and the process of breaking a streak is very demotivating it feels like you lost your progress it feels like oh i gotta start from scratch all over again and so as you're building a streak the idea that i like to keep in mind is don't break the chain it doesn't matter how good or how bad it felt that day it just don't break the chain just keep building that up but once the streak breaks once you slip up or something the mantra that i like to pair with that is never miss twice And never miss twice, I think it's particularly useful for – it's useful for a lot of habits. Diets in particular, we seem to act this way about. You know, you'd stick to a diet for seven or eight days, and then on the ninth day, you binge eat a pizza or something, and you're like, oh, why bother? I'll just go back to this old way of eating. I knew I wasn't going to be able to stick with that, blah, blah, blah. But never miss twice tells you, okay, I wish I hadn't binge ate the pizza, but never miss twice, so let me make sure the next meal is a healthy one. Or – I wish I hadn't you know, missed my journaling habit last Friday, but never miss twice. Let me make sure the next day I get right back into it. And so never miss twice is a way to kind of cut the problem off at the source. Like again, I think we all sort of implicitly know this from our experience that it's almost never the first mistake that ruins you. It's like the spiral of repeated mistakes that follows. It's letting messing up or missing a habit become a new habit it's letting that slip up become a new habit that's the real problem and so never miss twice kind of helps you stop that and start a new streak as quickly as possible so a little bit of a long-winded explanation but the point is habits should be as enjoyable as possible in the moment building a habit streak or using a habit tracker helps you do that but then never miss twice is a good buffer against the uncertainty of life and the fact that streaks break from time to time And it gets you refocused on what matters, which is starting a new streak as quickly as possible.
1: And I think that concept paired with what we talked about a minute ago, this idea of, as I would kind of call it, probability stacking, basically just getting as many tools as you possibly can, as many levers as you possibly can, pushing you towards the behavior, the habits that you want to create. Both of those and viewing habits as a probabilistic thing, right? It's not necessarily a black or white thing. It's a probability. Both of those to me really help create a sense of almost self-compassion that it's okay sometimes to mess up and you're not going to be perfect. And in many ways, the expectation of perfection can sabotage your trajectory and and set you back in some ways.
2: I think that's definitely true. You don't need to be perfect. You do need to be quick to recover. And that's kind of what never miss twice and designing a system and all this probabilistic ideas. That's kind of what that's getting at is we're trying to increase the odds that you show up and perform well day in and day out. And occasionally, life is going to throw something at you that prevents that. But as much as possible, you want to be quick to recover because the people who interrupt the compounding of their habits, the improvement of their habits, the people who interrupt that less are the ones who end up gaining. It's like this. It's when you get this yo-yo effect where you're like, oh, I did the habit for three months and then I had four months off. And then now I'm feeling like, oh, I really need to get back on track. And you just kind of the pendulum swings back and forth. The yo-yo goes up and down from on to off. And so never miss twice is trying to get over that and to build a lifestyle of consistency with just occasional blips where you miss. And uh, recovering quickly is kind of the name of the game in that sense.
1: I love that phrase, lifestyle of consistency. A lot of the things we've talked about today have really all centered around that concept of how do you consistently execute on the habits that are important to achieving your goals? Right. I'm curious, coming back to what we were talking about a minute ago, how do you think about And I don't know if you'll have an answer for this or not, but how do you think about figuring out what the right reps are? And in some things, it's obvious weightlifting, maybe reading, et cetera. But if you're talking about a complex business goal or something that's not, it's not as easily discernible, are there any tools or strategies that you found to be really effective to determine which reps or which habits are going to be the most impactful or have the highest probability of helping you be successful?
2: yeah that's a great question because it's really getting to strategy about like how do you know where to focus there are a couple different ways to answer this like one way to answer it is people you can call it different things reverse engineering imitation best practices blah 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 but you look at people who've achieved something that is either similar to what you've done or like adjacent to what you're trying to achieve and then you see what bits and pieces you can learn from their strategy or imitate from their strategy and maybe that'll help you get that'll maybe give you a starting place There are criticisms of that approach, which is like the Elon Musk kind of first principles thinking idea where you say, okay, just because people have done it that way in the past doesn't mean you should blindly imitate things. You should think clearly and carefully about what you're actually trying to achieve, distill it down to the absolute fundamental level of first principles where you say, what do we know for sure? And then build back up from there. So those are two common approaches. But I almost think, and I, I think those are good places to start if you're trying to figure out, what do I do first? Or where do I begin at all? But I think now my preferred answer to this is that it's much easier to figure out if something is working after you've tried it than it is to predict if it will work before it's tried. And so it's much easier to see when you're starting to make progress or when you're winning, so to speak, and double down on that rather than it is to try to figure it all out ahead of time. And what that means is that you should use uh, like a range of experiments to try to figure out what you're doing. So you're trying to figure out how can I run a cheap, quick, thoughtful, but cheap and quick test to see if this strategy is worth pursuing further. And you want to do that as much as possible. And then when occasionally a winning strategy kind of bubbles up, then you want to double down on that. And so the more that you're winning, the more you want to repeat that. And the more that you're losing, the more that you want to experiment more and try to get exposure to new ideas. There is one caveat to that strategy, which is if you spread yourself too thin, that's risky, too. One thing people say is like, don't keep all your eggs in one basket. If you lose that basket, then, you know, you lose the whole thing. So you want to diversify. But you could also say, don't keep your eggs in too many baskets, because then you have to keep watch and manage each basket. And the more that you divide your attention, the more you're doing things halfway. And doing things halfway is actually risky in itself, because you're competing against people who are focused and who are putting great energy into each of those baskets. It's very hard to win or to stand out when you're dividing your attention in all this way. So I think rather the answer is maybe you use First principles and uh, you know reverse engineering or imitation whatever you want to call it for like your eighty percent plan this is where I'm going to focus and this is what I'm going to spend the majority of my time on we're going to attack this strategy and then you run all these experiments with the other twenty percent of your time and resources and energy and occasionally when one of those baskets shows something fruitful you start to integrate it into your eighty percent time and double down on it more so there is this balance that's constantly going on, which is you got to stay focused if you want to get great results. If you're competing against other people, it's very hard to win if you spread yourself too thin. And yet, nobody knows what's going to work ahead of time. Nobody can predict the future. So you need to have at least some exposure to experiments so that you can find new ideas and then integrate those when they seem to take off.
1: That's a great perspective. And you shared a number of really helpful mental models to address that and figure out how to solve that challenge. So I'm curious for somebody who's been listening to this, who wants to start to take action and implement something that we've talked about today, what would one piece of homework or action step be that you would give them to start concretely taking action to build better habits?
2: Usually, I think the best place to start is with what I call like the two minute rule. And again, I'm just trying to keep this really simple. What should the next action be? And uh the two-minute rule says take whatever habit you're trying to build and scale it down to something it takes two minutes or less to do. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page. Or, you know, do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes people resist that a little bit. You know, they're like, okay, I get what you're saying, but like I also know the real goal isn't just to take my yoga mat out. Like I know I actually want to do the workout. So If this is some kind of mental trick or something, like, why would I fall for it, basically? And I get where people are coming from, but there's a story that I tell in the book of this guy named Mitch. And he ended up losing over 100 pounds. And he had this rule where, for the first six weeks that he went to the gym, he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he'd get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds like silly. You're like, obviously, this is not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But what you realize if you step back is he was mastering the art of showing up, you know? And I think this is a deeper truth about habits that people often overlook, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? Like it has to become the standard in your life before you can optimize and scale it up into anything more. If you, if you don't make it the standard, if you don't master the art of showing up, there's like no raw material to work with. There's nothing to optimize. It's just a theory. And so, I think the best place to start is to use the two minute rule to kind of get over that hump to say, all right, look, I'm going to try to master the art of showing up. I'm going to integrate this new habit, even if it's very small into my life. And then once it becomes part of my new normal, once it becomes a lifestyle, then I've got plenty of options for scaling, improving, expanding it from there. And so in that way, I would say the two minute rule is a great place to start.
1: Great suggestion. And I love the story of Mitch. It's such a powerful way to really break down the difference between showing up for the habit and then ultimately building on the habit. And if you don't master showing up, then there may be no habit to build on at all. Right. So, James, where can listeners find you and the book and all of your work online?
2: Yeah. Well, if you want to check out Atomic Habits directly, you can just go to atomichabits.com. Obviously, you know we didn't have time to get into most of it. So it kind of breaks down a lot of the stuff that we discussed and expands on that. And if you're curious just about more of my work or want to read more of my writing, you can go to jamesclear.com. You can also find the book there, of course. But probably the one thing I'm known for outside of Atomic Habits would be my weekly newsletter. So that's called 321. And every Thursday, I send out three short ideas from me, two quotes from other people, and then one question to think about during the week. And so if you're interested, feel free to poke around, check out some of the articles or sign up for the newsletter. And uh, you can do all that at jamesclear.com.
1: Well, James, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Another fascinating conversation. So many great lessons. And I personally really learned a tremendous amount from our discussion.
2: Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email.